0: with a question with regard to socialized medicine. And I would like to continue for a moment or two with that subject and give you my own experience with socialized medicine. When I was on the Indian reservation, of course, the medicine there was socialized medicine. The federal government provided the hospital, and it provided the doctor who was a civil service employee, and similarly the nurses. The hospital was a very superior one, beautiful Everyone who came in admired it. After all, the federal government had funds that most communities didn't have, and it could put up a very beautiful hospital. But the realities of medical practice in the Indian service were anything but beautiful. There was no competition. A doctor, once he was in the civil service, could only with the greatest difficulty be discharged. To remove any civil service employee in any area of the civil service is next to impossible. It requires a costly procedure that takes sometimes years. As a result, everyone knows they have a security. Then, second, promotion comes not by achievement, by, but by the lack of it. Now, this applied not only to medical practice, but to any kind of practice. If in the civil service, You are doing a good job. A very competent piece of work. And in your annual rating by your superior, you are given that kind of rating that you deserve. You are immediately promoted to a higher jurisdiction. Now, if you are a supervisor, you are automatically try to keep the best men there. You'll give them a low rating, and you'll promote the incompetence upward and onward. Thus, the, the more incompetent the doctor, the more likely he is to get promoted, and the same is true of the nurse or clerks in the agency building, and any and all engineers. Let me give you examples of this. Ours was a rather superior agency in its standing, and therefore we got those who had promotions. We had one doctor who came there who was an alcoholic. Only about one week in a month was he able to function to even a limited degree. The rest of the time, he was under the influence, barely able to stagger around in his home, provided by the government in a very beautiful stone mansion. Towards the end of... uh, Two or three weeks he would be so weak from malnutrition, having done nothing but drink, the nurses would make their way into the doctor's home and put him to bed and feed him, and then he would recover sufficiently to go back to work for a few days and then start in all over again. Of course, he got an excellent rating and was quickly promoted to an even higher jurisdiction. This should tell you something about the men who reached the top in the civil service. Another doctor we had who was... capable... but callous and cold. As a man who put terror in the hearts of anyone who went to them. He was so cold and callous a person. On one occasion, a rancher 50 miles out to the west of the reservation brought in his wife and child. An oil stove had exploded, and burning oil had hit them from... His wife in the waist up and his child in the head. The skin had just fallen off like a sheet. They were in screaming agony. The doctor refused to the treat them. He said, my practice is limited to Indians. I'm not required by law to treat anyone else. He not only shut the door on them, but told the nurses they would, he would prefer charges against them if he caught any of them seeking out to give any kind of medication. That man had to drive his wife and child another hundred miles to the nearest town for treatment. He later said it was a strong temptation on his part to shoot that doctor. Now, I could go on and cite one horror story after another. And they'd all be all too true, and would not be extreme examples, but routine things. It's a beautiful hospital, all kinds of money... But even the Indians, who had the right to use it, were usually fearful. Now that's socialized medicine. Socialized medicine with a hundred-year history. It isn't quite that bad in some of the European countries, like Sweden and Britain, but it's getting there. So... I know something about socialized medicine, and I regard it as an enemy of everything we as Christians must believe in. Then there was a question (coughs) that I think is important. Would you relate this to the beginning, what we've been dealing with, of teaching science in the primary grades? (coughs) What weight should be? uh, should the areas of theory and experimentation have in the primary and intermediate grades? And of course, when we approach this matter not from the standpoint of humanistic science, we can deal a great deal with theory and experimentation from a biblical point of view. ...because all valid science simply demonstrates the word of God is true. And we can call the attention of the children to the fact that... ...each after its kind is demonstrated to be true. That God has created a fundamental order in the plants and in the animals. And a fundamental order for our lives which he sets down in his word. So I think it's an opportunity for some very excellent elementary teaching. Now to continue with our analysis of science from a Christian perspective and how we are to approach it. The modern scientist has an image with the public of a prim and proper technician working earnestly and objectively in the laboratory from a totally neutral point of view. In reality, we have today in the sciences a radically humanistic perspective that is working earnestly indeed but from an anti-christian perspective. We must, in fact, say that the modern philosophical and scientific perspective have fathered, in our lifetime, the beatniks, the hippies, the revolutionaries, and the drug culture people. Why? I'd like to turn again to Dr. Van Ter and his essays on Christian education, wherein he says, and I quote, in particular, the goal of modern culture is the cultivation of self-sufficient free human personality. It is assumed by those who hold this ideal that the world of space and time is controlled by impersonal laws. And that human freedom must be attained by setting it negatively over against the impersonal laws of space and time. The world of space and time is not thought of as embodying the laws of the Creator. Therefore, the idea of freedom is freedom that is set over against mechanism, not freedom that is found in obedience to God. So the goal of freedom is one of pure negation, or if it is uh, one of affirmation, then it is that of an ideal cast up into the limitless sky of the unknown. Here, too, it is the first duty of Christians to call men to repentance, lest they and their culture lose all meaning, and men remain under the wrath of God, Unquote. This is from his Essays on Christian Education. Now, what Banteau calls attention to there is a fundamental aspect of modern philosophy and science, namely its dialectical premise. It is a dialectic of nature versus freedom. Now, dialecticism is not Christian. Dialectical theology is militantly humanist, but in the modern dialectical thought which undergirds science, nature is the realm of necessity, of determinism. Freedom, therefore, is the area of the human mind or personality. And even that is challenged, in the validity of it, by contemporary thinking. You have thus what Karl Marx tried to deal with. On the one hand, the kingdom of necessity, and on the other hand, the kingdom of man, or freedom. Because nature equals necessity, blind determinism. What freedom is left for man, because man is a product of nature, in terms of humanism, in terms of evolution. Everything in man belongs to the kingdom of necessity, is governed by a blind atomic determinism. The only area that remains free for him is his mind or imagination. What, then, is his mind capable of? In terms of this philosophy, the natural world being the realm of the deterministic of necessity... All that the mind can do is to negate so that the realm of human freedom is simply pure negation. Remember André Marois, whom I quoted, I love to displease. The beatniks, the hippies, the revolutionaries, the drug culture people drop out Or negate, or destroy, or search your freedom. For the drug culture people, freedom was in a world of imagination, cut off from physical reality by the use of drugs. The leading figures in the world of art who dominated the scene in France between 1885 and 1914 was Apollinaire. Apollinaire said that, and he was a father of modern art, the gratuitous act is the only way we can express our freedom. The Gratuitous Act is the unmotivated act, the senseless act, the meaningless act. Moreover, in order for the Gratuitous Act to be an expression of freedom, it had to be not only anti-God, but anti-nature, and therefore it had to be pure evil unmotivated evil. As a result, freedom in the modern world means lawlessness. Of course, for us, freedom means obedience to God. We do not believe that nature is meaningless nor that it is purposeless. It is the handiwork of God, and it serves God. I mentioned yesterday that it is a great mistake for us to treat Scripture as poetry. We need to take it seriously. For example, in the book of Nahum, the first chapter, verses... 2 through 8. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth in his furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all equip the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust at his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and draweth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Now what? there declares, is that God is active in nature to bless and to judge. Nature is not a realm of blind, senseless necessity, but an area which manifests the will of the personal and almighty God. Nature serves his purposes. Now, only such a faith can preserve science and man. Naturalism makes nature a blind and meaningless determinism and freedom negation. Naturalism is, as we saw in the last hour, reductionism. Reality is reduced to matter. Now, in terms of the modern perspective on science... To live is to be physical, because reality is physical. If we do not tr- teach science from a biblical perspective, our science, because it will deal with this impersonal realm of nature, will convey to the children that the world around us and our lives Are essentially to be governed by the physical. They will therefore see as important in their lives their physical appetites and urges, and will feel that these must govern rather than the Word of God. In terms of the modern perspective, as a result, you today see life as sex, and if they are denied their right to sex in terms of their thinking, then they're denied the right to live. And as a result, they look on scripture as though... It's an anti-life book. That's what I was told by a college student. An anti-life book. Because to live is to experience the physical. This attitude saturates our world around us. I'm regularly told by people, well, you really haven't lived if you haven't gone to Europe or here or there. You see the implication there? To live is to experience the physical. And travel has that religious dimension for modern man, humanistic man, just as sex does. Life becomes experiencing things, physical things. As early as the 1920s, one researcher, not a Christian, made a study of a large number of American wives and adultery. And he found that the reason for their adultery was not that it pleased them, not that they were really in love with anybody. It was they thought that they, if they didn't experience that they would be missing out on life. It was the worship of experience that led them into the sin. And this attitude is cultivated on all sides, and it is a product of this scientific perspective that reality is physical and therefore to live is to experience this and that physical experience. As a consequence, we have today the continual quest for more and more experience. Why do people go to see Jaws or uh, a Rosemary's Baby and that sort of thing and to terrify themselves? They come out about what an experience it was. They were so terrified. Why I uh, dug uh, marks into Bob's uh, wrist with my fingernails, I was so scared. It was a tremendous experience. Indeed, it was. They were in quest of a religious experience in terms of modern humanism. And they were exalting in that experience. And this is why there comes continually the demand for something further and further out. So that their experience can be more intensified. It is a religious thing. It is not Christ who is the life for them. It is experience of the physical that is life. This is why I've stressed and read Nahum. You must present the natural world. To your children. Through the eyes of Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things therein. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. <laughs> Make them recognize that at every turn, they are face to face with God's handiwork, that God witnesses to them in all of creation. They must never see it as an impersonal, purely physical run of existence. The living God witnesses and speaks to us through all things. He tells us so day under day after speech, and night under night show of knowledge. All factuality, therefore, because it is the handiwork of a personal God, is a realm where we do not experience life apart from God. But we know God And glorify him as the Lord and as the creator. The basic reality, you see, in the universe is not the atom. The basic reality is that it is the creation of God. modern science would have us believe that science is the source of truth, and the truth is physical reality. George Sarkin has written, and I quote, Science is the whole body of systematized and objective knowledge. It is very incomplete and very imperfect, but it is indefinitely Perfectible. unquote. It is the whole body of knowledge, he goes on to say, as the scientific method ascertains it. What has he done? He has identified truth with the scientific method, and therefore revelation is not the truth. Truth, for us comes from the word of God. Truth is also the person, Jesus Christ, whose word the unscriptured word is. Therefore, truth is personal. And before we can have any truth in any other realm, we presuppose the truth of God and his word. We begin with our faith in the triune God. But when we exclude revelation as the modern concept of the scientific method does, science, therefore, equals knowledge. W.F.G. Swan has written, and I quote, Scientists must avoid all theological doctrine as a starting point, unquote. Of course, a hundred such statements could be cited from any library, but our scientists are scientists avoiding the theological premise. They begin with the theology of humanism, man as God, and they presuppose a different faith. Dr. Van Til, who has done more, perhaps, in this field than almost any other scholar in analyzing the presuppositions of the modern perspective from a Biblical faith, has said, and I will quote as soon as I find where I have that proper quotation, yes, here, He describes the premise behind the method of modern science, and he describes it in terms of the Garden of Eden. I quote, in Paradise, Satan had won the heart of man away from God to himself. He had done so by the cleverest of stratagems. He had done so by making Eve and Adam believe that while eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... They were engaging in the first, really, scientific enterprise. It was an experiment far more significant in its consequences for human culture than the first trip made recently to the moon. There were two mutually opposing hypotheses with respect to the possible consequences of eating of the fruit of that tree. There was the theory of the one party who called himself God and who therefore, in dogmatic fashion, asserted that death would be the only possible consequence of eating the forbidden fruit. Then there was the theory of the second party. This party was not dogmatic at all, he only claimed that scientific experimentation requires an open mind. Especially was this true in the case of the first scientific experiment ever to be made. There were no records of what had happened in the past. And to speak of this tree in distinction from all other trees as a forbidden tree is to assume that that one party alone owned all the world. In his genuine freedom of choice, Man must, therefore decide between these two available hypotheses, according to the temperature. Unquote. I think the point is clear. The scientific method has a religious premise. As we meet it today, it says there are open options in every direction. Yea, hath God said, thus far and no further. Its premise is that man is the judge. That there are to be no boundaries on what he does. Dr. Graf earlier asked the question about experimentation with human beings. Now that is a Christian question. Recently in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there was a serious debate and discussion when a similar question was raised. One man, in the sciences there, raised the question with regard to the validity of certain experimentations which he felt could endanger the life of man and of the community, which could produce new variations of diseases which could spread from the laboratory and destroy countless lives. Many citizens and official bodies in the community protested bitterly and extensively and declared there should be guidelines, and the issue was debated in the Scientific Press and in some journals like Atlantic Monthly and Harper's. But by and large, most of the scientists felt that even to raise the question was inadmissible. to posit that there could be any boundaries on scientific activities was to be retrogressive. Now, of course, they do not like the fact when they are reminded of it, that this is precisely what some of Hitler's doctors said with respect to their experimentation. They pleaded with the Nuremberg court to be allowed to go back and complete their work. It is important to science. They were concerned with scientific truth. They were, in effect, saying... There is no other truth except through us. We are the way, the truth, and the life. And, of course, the entire program of the chapter was precisely this. Let man establish himself as the agency of truth. Let man be the judge, not God. Let it not be God's word, thou shalt not. But man, I shall do that which I please. The results of the scientific research which are valid are such in spite of the scientific methodology and faith. They presuppose, as I pointed out before, an orderly world, a world of meaning and a purpose. I cited earlier in one of my previous lectures what has been taking place in mathematics and the doubts of the mathematicians involved in the moonshot and the validity of their mathematics. Let me cite now the statement of Dr. Salvadori, a mathematician at Columbia University. He holds that, and I quote, Mathematics is a game in which the players set up their own rules and play with no other purpose than to play according to the rules. Any player may at any time change any rules, provided this change does not lead to contradictory rules. Since, moreover, mathematics may be played by a single individual, The player doesn't even need the consent of one or more partners in order to change a rule. This definition of mathematics will come as a shock to all but the mathematical experts." Unquote. Now, in other words, what he is saying? Mathematics is pure invention, logic of the human mind, has no relationship to reality, And therefore, if you are assuming that there is some kind of order or meaning in the universe which is God-given, you are a fool. But if we read a little further, Salvadori adds, which too few of these men will, and I quote, that mathematics is the purest of games should not obscure the fact that most of its rules have roots in reality and were originally suggested by practical situations, unquote. He's negated everything he's previously said. This kind of game is regularly played by these men. Or we can go further and find that A biologist, Hoagland, tells us, Hudson Hoagland, that there are, and I quote, only two answers to the question of how life began. It must either have arisen spontaneously from non-living material or have been created by supernatural means. If one accepts the second answer, science has nothing to contribute since the question cannot be resolved by the operational approach of scientists, unquote. Two answers. If you accept God, then you ruled out science. Why? Only because it is presupposed that the scientist is ultimate, that man is ultimate, and that if there is any truth, he is to use his... And operational approaches will discover it. By definition, there can be no truth from revelation. In other words, there is no science if man is not God. And therefore, man is determined to play God. Dr. Mayor Mastin has said that man may be, quote, on his way toward creating a new human species, unquote. In terms of this, we must recognize emphatically that a non-Christian textbook in the sciences is dangerous because implicit to it is a presumption with regard to man and with regard to the sciences that meditates against everything the Christian school stands for. This is why it is important for Christian textbooks to be written. I was delighted, by the way, to see some of the elementary textbooks in the sciences put out by Becca Publications. They begin with a theological promise. You either begin with that, or you teach a humanistic one, whether you intend it to be such or not. For us, the Bible is the basic book of knowledge. It is the one source of infallible truth. It is the book in terms of which all other books must be written. It provides the inner orientation for all teachings. Without it, we fall into superstition. We believe in things like spontaneous generation, evolution, and the like. Our teaching, therefore, must be unabashedly Christian. We cannot believe in objectivity in teaching. It is a myth. The so-called objective textbooks are really hiding their presuppositions which are humanistic, usually. So we do begin with the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We do have in mind that at God's appointed time, all creation will terminate in the second advent. We do teach that God created all things in terms of a purpose, In terms of meaning and patterns and that we can understand things in terms of that pattern. If we teach our children that we give them an advantage in the sciences. At the table the other day I mentioned to those present the fact that a very distinguished geneticist, now retired, one during his years as a research scientist, 11 prizes in genetics. He made it clear that it was very easy for him to out-distance his competitors and to reach results before others working on a similar project reached them. He did it because, as a strong Christian who believed strictly in six-day creation, he knew that evolution was not true. He knew that he could not produce anything by violating the species and the kinds, more literally, as Scripture teaches it, so that he did not try in the laboratory to accomplish what the Bible told him he could not do. In other words, he didn't try to produce the mule that was beveled. And as a result, he always had a shortcut. Other men without his faith were barking up the wrong trees, pursuing blind alleys, because they lacked his faith. I believe that as we teach a rigorously biblical rigorous approach to the various sciences, we are going to stimulate, in the not too distant future, More research than the humanists are able to do. We will have the basic premises that make research possible. Are there any questions now? Yes. The question is, does a person have a right to die with dignity? That's a loaded question. The way it was asked in California, it was uh, really a way of saying, do you believe in euthanasia? A bill was passed, which is the most dangerous one. It gave people ostensibly the right to die with dignity, which meant that if they signed a paper saying that medication was not to be given to them or their life was not to be prolonged, the doctor had to abide by it. However, there were very serious aspects of that which tied the hand of the doctor. And which required him to do nothing at times when he may well have believed that the life of the patient could have been saved. Moreover, it presupposed something that I think is the exception rather than the rule. It's presupposed that in the majority of cases life is unnecessarily prolonged when the person is no more than a vegetable. Now such cases are by and large few and far between. Just as these cases where you have surgery and the bill runs into unseen thousands are the exception, not the rule. We have people trying to scare people to death into feeling that medical practice represents a menace. And these whole stories are trotted out. Anyone has the right to die with dignity as a Christian, if they are a Christian, and they can so die. Very easy. No one compels you to go to the hospital if you are ill. I've known men who've had serious heart attacks, and they knew it was the end, and they said, "I think I'll be gone within an hour or two. and Let me die here at home." And they have. If their doctor has been a Christian doctor, he's made them comfortable, and done what's possible for them, or told them if he felt that more could be done, they could be saved. That sort thing happens every day that all these efforts are means of controlling medical practice, and saying to the practitioner, you're not competent. A group of politicians have more competence than you have. And I object to that strenuously. I'll take my chances with the doctor before I take my chances with the politicians especially when I'm on the table. Yes. The question is, do I believe in such a thing as Christian psychiatry? I think it's possible, but I don't know that I've seen it. However, let me report to you what The uh, name escapes me at the moment. Perhaps some of you can recall it. G. Campbell Morgan, successor of the British doctor. Martin Lloyd-Jones, yes. How many of you have ever heard of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Yes, some of you have. Well, some years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones was in San Francisco and he spoke to a medical group. Uh, Dr. Cornelius Vantella and I were the only two uh, non-doctors who were present. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was, before he went into the pastorate, a heart specialist in Britain and a surgeon, I believe, to one of the recent kings. I'm not sure whether it was George VI or George V. But he gave a very interesting talk there on a Christian perspective with regard to medicine, and I'm going to try very inadequately to reproduce what he had to say. He said that when he began medical practice, it was customary for the doctors in his medical school to ridicule anyone who believed that mental attitudes could cause ulcers any student who had picked up that new theory and mentioned it got into trouble he said of course nowadays every doctor in every medical school recognizes the role of the mind in ulcers but he said at that time the doctors would uh, ridicule any student who made such a statement or asked a question in that direction and go to the blackboard and point out Chemically, what was behind altars and they were right that they were reducing you see man to his chemistry they had the chemistry correctly but they didn't have the man in the chemistry and he said now we have psychosomatic medicine coming to the fore and we are recognizing the role of the mind in medicine but he said I'm not satisfied he said i don't believe the doctor should leave the role of the mind to the psychiatrist or that the psychiatrist in dealing with it has the whole story he said we still are not dealing with the whole man and he said the whole man is the man of scripture the man god created in his image and when we develop the right doctrine of medicine, it will be scripturally based and we will be treating the whole man and our doctors will be Christians. And he said a few years ago, a man was referred to me who had had a series of operations he said they'd taken about everything out of him that could be taken. And now his heart was acting up. So he said he was referred to me, and he said, I had talked with a man. I thought it was strange that a man in the prime of life, in a very powerful position, a keen man in his field in Great Britain, should find himself in such bad shape physically. So, he said, I began to probe. He said, I believe that man's spiritual state is related to his physical condition. And he said the man was indignant, and he got up and threatened to report me to medical association for quackery because I was asking questions about his conscience. What was he guilty of? What did he need to confess to the Lord? And he said, finally, the man broke down and confessed how, on his way up years before, he had destroyed a man. And it had led to the death of the man in his ambitious surge to get ahead. It had troubled him exceedingly. He had anonymously tried to make restitution to the widow and the family. The guilt was eating out his heart, destroying his life. Well, of course, immediately, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke to him as a Christian doctor who was also a pastor. And told him that surgery could never cut out his guilt, but that Jesus Christ could make him a new creation and give him forgiveness of sin. Dr. Jones, Martin Roy Jones, said that the man no longer had any problem. So he said, I believe that what we need to work towards is a Christian medical practice which develops the implications of the faith for the whole life of man. Solomon says, A merry heart doeth good like medicine. We need to believe that when a man is at peace with God, he is at peace within, within himself, and therefore it has its effects on his well-being. Now, I wish Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had the time sometime to write up what he there propounded and developed it further, because I do feel it is extremely important this is the kind of thinking we need to develop, not only in medicine, but in other areas as well. Dr. Graf, would you like to comment on that? I think you could tell us a great deal more than I've reported so inadequately from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do you want to come up here and do it so that everyone can hear you more clearly?
1: Uh, i
2: Well, I'll start with a confession. When I was a a young man in the University of Wisconsin, I was uh, uh, fascinated with psychology. I thought that was the handle to power, so to speak, as I was going into the medical profession. So I took a lot of work under uh, Harlow and his crowd up there that worked with monkeys. Uh, I didn't... uh, catch the truth when this good old assistant dean in medical school looked at my transcript and he said uh i see you spent a lot of time in a pseudo science uh these are terms they were using at that time Uh, i didn't pay much attention to him i later tried to stay somewhat in this field and actually studied a little under a teaching analyst at the Mayo Clinic, who was uh, considered to be probably one of the leaders in the world at that time. Uh, But I have since found out that these avenues led nowhere and when someone brought up the term is there such a thing as a christian psychiatrist i got a big grin on my face because i don't think there is i think that two terms oppose each other psychology uh basically is what we're talking about i think of a psychiatrist is first being a physician and then delving into the discipline of psychology, abnormal psychology. Now, educational psychologists should never go around trying to counsel people in the area of abnormal psychology in psychiatry. I've had problems with people trying to do that, Uh, and you may question me on that. But what I'm rapidly trying to get to without taking much time Is that I just haven't found a Christian psychologist yet. And the more I think about it, the more I feel that to us as Christians, the only one that can minister to our needs is the Holy Spirit. There is no human that can take his place. And that's what I'll stop with.
1: Thank you. Yes. You people of the of do you see the modern movement as a religious
0: experience and not of the Yes. I don't want to get into various religious uh, differences of opinion. But I do know that, as I've seen it in Southern California, you have a tremendous number of people who drift from one thing to another, and they go into the charismatic movement for a while, and they go in for group therapy and so on. They're into everything, including charismatics, is what I'm saying, as a part of the quest for experience. So the charismatic movement does lend itself. To the church. I'm not saying that's all it is, although I have my very definite differences with it. Yes? <laughs> Yes, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, I cited several times today, in particular his essays on Christian education, which I do commend to you. You'll find them very good reading. Some of it is difficult, but some of it is crystal clear. Dr. Cornelius Van Til is the leading A man in the world today and in this century, I believe, in the philosophy of religion and in uh, systematics. He taught, he is now retired and in his 80s at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He is a thinker who has developed more than any other the teaching that our presuppositions must be totally scriptural, that we cannot begin with man's reason, nor with science, we begin in every area with the word of God, with the God of Scripture. Now, for this reason, some people, of course, who are saying the tradition of Fuller Seminary or uh, Wheaton are most hostile to him. And men like Geisler and True and others are, uh, as Cornell and Carl Henry and others of the Christianity Today group, have been most critical of him. But it is significant that Karl Barth regarded it as the one man he feared most, and Dr. Cornelius Van Til. I think you'll find his Essays on Christian Education a good place to begin. It's in paperback, yes. The destructiveness of sensitivity training. Sensitivity training, of course, is in the line of what I've just been discussing, the emphasis on experience. Above all, what sensitivity training does is to insist on an openness really to that which is forbidden. Whenever there is any, especially with adult groups, groups that trust sensitivity training, it tells you that things that normally were beyond the law, beyond the possible for you, you must now be open to, without prejudice. It makes you sensitive to the sinful and insensitive to that which is righteous and holy. So, it is in sensitivity training, in my point of view, to godliness. Yes. The question is, were there dinosaurs? Yes. Uh, In his various writings, Henry G. Morris deals with them. In fact, he feels there's a reference to them in uh, the book of Job. And uh, perhaps I can locate that. Only if I can do it quickly, because I don't want to take too much time with it. Yes, in Job 40, verse 15 following, Henry Morris believes this is a reference to the Brontosaurus. And he has lectured on his grounds for doing it and I believe in one of his recent books he goes into the reason why. He also believes that the conditions of life before the flood plus the longer lifespan made possible for some animals to grow to enormous sizes so that not all those prehistoric animals are missing today. We have them now in very reduced forms. Now, I'm simply reporting in very inadequate fashion what he has said. I have no confidence in the area. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, there have been many, many articles and several books of late about men... Uh, at the point of death, supposedly briefly looking into the world beyond. This sort of thing is not new. Most of what we are getting, if not all, comes from people who have close connections with occultism. What they tell us about the life to come is that there is no heaven nor hell And it's all one beautiful wall. Thus, they are emphatically proclaiming another gospel. We need to view all such works with suspicion. Unfortunately, it has received a great deal of publicity in the press, and also, I believe, Reader's Digest carried... uh, a condensation of one such report not too long ago, but they do not tell us that, uh, occultism is very much in the background and the foreground of the thinking of these people. Incidentally, the other day, uh, one student told me that occultism is very definitely present in, uh, what is this very popular movie now? Star Wars. Is that the title? Star Wars? Something like that. That the good guys in Star Wars are occultists. Yes. Could we run? I'm not competent to answer that question. Yes? The question is what happened when we are told the earth was divided uh, in the days of Noah? It's difficult to answer that question. There are some very competent men who have theorize about it. Uh, There is a NASA scientist on the West Coast who says uh, that the continents divided at that time and the oceans were formed. His name is also uh, Morris, but not Morris, M-O-R-S-E and his publications are purely technical but he feels that the oceans were created at one time. It would be some, uh, something of value if a group like, uh, Dr. Morse's group would bring together a symposium on the subject. There are some very interesting ideas about that, But again, I don't know uh, the answer. Interesting fact, by the way, there is a book, The Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, which points out that some of the most ancient maps we have, we would say they go back to the days just after the flood. And in terms of the dating they give, it would take it back to that time. Maps that have been discovered in various parts of the world, in China and elsewhere, that indicate man in those early days had explored the world after the flood and knew the existence of Antarctica and North and South America and knew both longitude and latitude so that we had apparently a decline in the generations after the flood. Now, how valid that uh, argument is, I don't know, but uh, there are some interesting books in that direction. Yes. Maps of the ancient sea kings. Beyond that I, I don't remember the name of the author. He was a man who was associated for a time with Einstein, yes.
1: Uh, Yes,
0: I'm familiar with that, and I view it with uh, skepticism. Yes. Yes, did you get a copy the first or second day of our report? Yes. If you're interested in being on our mailing list, just drop us a note and we'll put you on our mailing list. We're ready to put anyone on without charge, although we do welcome new nations because that's the only way we survive, by the gift of those who it. Yes. I'm not constant to comment on it. Ask Dr. Grass about that sometimes. Yes. My view on the gap theory... Uh well, I I don't like to get into questions that uh involve theological differences. Uh I'll simply say that I don't believe it. I think a good book uh about it is just written by Weston Fields Unformed and Unfilled. Weston Fields uh is a graduate student in the sciences who's working with uh, Dr. Whitcomb, one of the co-authors of the Genesis Club. And incidentally, uh, a name to remember because Weston Field, in conjunction with Dr. Whitcomb, is going to bring out a series of studies in the sciences that will deal with the origin of things from a biblical perspective. The first title, which I read at their request in manuscript, will be on the origin of the moon. And then they will go ahead to provide some basic uh, books uh, dealing with origins from a thoroughly biblical perspective. Yes? How much time should we spend on experiments? Oh, I hope this won't upset some of you, but I don't think we need to spend any time. You see, first of all, the students are not working experiments. An experiment is something that has not been done before. All you have is a demonstration of an experiment. Then, these demonstrations are very costly and expensive, and a Christian school can better use its money elsewhere. Then, further, if a demonstration is needed, one demonstration can be made by the teacher and teach more and save time. The students who do not have lab work in high school actually will learn more science and be better prepared if they're going into the sciences in the university than those who spend endless time in lab work i think it's sad that a great many christian schools feel that they have not really arrived unless they brought a lot of expensive lab equipment I I just don't see the need for it and I have talked with some men who are in the field of the sciences and they agree. I'm not saying everyone does, but I've talked with a couple who really didn't see the need for it and thought there could be more teaching by the teacher if you eliminated all but the demonstration by the teacher. I hope that doesn't upset some of you too much. Yes. How can you teach those skills? Well, if they're going to go into the sciences, they can learn that when they become uh, upper division students at the university. Those are easily learned. But it's an expensive thing, and the Christian school has to husband its sons. To teach them that in the high school. It's a were part of the school budget. Yes. Mm-hmm. In the state of Washington, uh, lab sciences are required. Well, in that case, uh, you have two choices either to submit or to fight. <laughs> Yes. A recent in Houston, what? Oh. Uh, the possibilities of Noah's Ark on the expedition there. Well, I think it's there, but I don't know any more than you do. (laughs) Uh, Except that being Armenian, I come from a background where it was always assumed it was there. And supposedly, people in various generations who got up there stopped. But uh, it's only on rare occasions that the snowpack melts sufficiently so that it is both visible and approachable. So... Uh, Now, there's a problem in working there, the most difficult of all mountains to get into. First, there are continual rock slides and snow slides, one of the big difficulties is getting to it. Uh, The Turks create all kinds of problems. The Kurds are notorious thieves and murderers, so your chances of getting by them are not the best. (laughs) Then, third, there are the wild dogs in the area, which can kill you, and will raid camps in the dark. Then, as you try to climb, there are the snow sides and the rock sides. It's a fearful area for those. So, the problems are really tremendous. Yes. I have no competence in the area any other questions we have time for perhaps one more well if not you'll get an extra long break then <laughs>